so good when you come into church and maybe you were feeling a little dry or empty and you can get filled with the presence of God. Amen? Thank you, Jesus, for that. We're in a series right now called Wonder, and uh, last week we talked about the eternality of God, talked about that eternal characteristic of God, the fact that God always was and always will be, and uh, if you missed it, man, go back and listen. It, It really begins this series off on the right foot, just meditating and thinking about uh, that everything gets its existence from and through God, from and through Jesus Christ. Uh, before anything was, he was. And so go back and listen to that. If you, if you missed it, it it'll bless you tremendously. Um, but this series, the reason we're calling it Wonder is because we just want to take time to wonder in amazement about God and who he is and and just take some of those things that because that's really our place right as humans there's a lot about God and the things he's created that should cause us to just sit back and wonder and amazement at who he is a lot of times uh, when we come to church or we're reading our Bible we can get caught up in you know in prayer and we can get caught up in what God is going to do for us, right? We're going to pray, we're going to ask God to do some things for us, and then on the flip side, we can get caught up in what we're going to do for him. You know, it's always, God, am I doing enough? Uh, Do you need me to do more? How do I need to change? So it can always be about, if you're not careful, it can always be about what God's going to do for you and then what you're going to do for him. But that's not really the core of any relationship, right? That's not the core of any healthy relationship. You think about your spouse, you're doing a lot for them, they're doing a lot for you. But there has to be something more than that. There has to be something more than just what we're doing for each other because that's kind of just almost like a partnership, a working relationship, almost like a business relationship. But there has to be that time where we're together and it's just, I don't need anything from you. You don't need anything from me. We just want to be, we just want to be together, right? Isn't that important for relationship? Well, so same thing with God. That's kind of what we're doing in this series. I don't think he's asking anything of you. We're not asking anything of him. We just want to take some time to wonder in amazement at how good God is. Amen? So we talked about his eternal nature last week. This week we're going to talk about the eternal nature of the Word of God, our Bible, as well. Now, I spent some time in 2022, uh, week one of our Christmas series, I spent some time proving that the Word of God is, in fact, the Word of God. Okay, if you want to, that's not what we're going to do today. If you want to go back and listen to that, you can. That's uh, week one of our Christmas series in 2022. You can go back and listen to that. Um, But today I'm going to assume that you already believe that the Word of God is the Word of God. Um, It's what we base our life on. It's the standard of truth. It's the standard which all other truths are measured by. All right, so if I hear something out in the world and it says things are this way, Guess what? I'm going to measure that against the standard of God's Word. That's the standard for me. Now, you may not hold it in that high of a standard. I don't know. But, but if not, then it's because you don't actually believe it's the Word of God. If it actually is the Word of God, it's the standard by which everything else has to be measured by. But I'm going to assume today that you do believe that, and we're just going to kind of sit back and wonder at how awesome His Word is. Amen? So I want to talk about two aspects of the Word of God today. This, by the way, could be an entire series on its own. So we're just going to look at two aspects of the Word of God today. And the first is the power of the Word of God 
to actually bring life change into people's lives. There's a lot of self-help out there. As a matter of fact, self-help is one of the fastest growing categories of literature that, that's available today. Self-help, people trying to do self-improvement. There's no self-help book in the world like the Word of God. The power of the Word of God to actually bring real change in people's lives is amazing. Um, how many of you have ever been driving your car and you realized that it was out of alignment? Yeah, we had to, we've all had that, right? You know, and it could be anything from just a little bit out of alignment to pretty severely out of alignment. You know, if it's a little bit out of alignment, it's annoying, right? Because you just start feeling it pull a certain direction. But it's not necessarily causing any detrimental problems. But the more out of alignment it gets, the more of a problem you can have. The other day, this happened just a couple weeks ago. I'm driving down 28 West. Me and my son are in my, my pickup truck, and we're driving, and there's a car right next to me. I mean, we're side by side, and it sounded like a shotgun went off. Y'all already know what happened. It was a blowout, and I'm seeing rubber fly. <laughs> it's really not funny. I don't know why. I'm, I'm laughing because of the look on the guy's face. Now, I, I was, we were side by side, so when it happened, I looked sideways at just the, the shock on his face. You can all imagine if you've ever had a blowout. I've never actually had a blowout going down the road, but you can imagine you're just in your own little world doing who knows what and, and the shock of that that happened. I wasn't even in his vehicle, and I, I was shocked. The shotgun, I looked sideways, and there's rubber flying everywhere, and he's doing this, and he's trying to get control, you know, and he's trying to get off to the shoulder. Well, so yeah, now you're really bad out of alignment, right? Because you're on three wheels at this point, and it's, it's not designed to go straight on, on three wheels. It needs four wheels to go straight. So you can have everything from just a little bit out of alignment to a whole lot of alignment. Now the wheels are coming off, and, and you, you, you're in big trouble. And this is the same with people's lives when it comes to the Word of God. The more out of alignment that you are, with the Word of God, the more trouble and the more problems you're going to have in every area of your life, in relationships, in your relationship with God, in your marriage, in relation with your kids, sin, money, on and on. The more out of alignment that you are with the Word of God, the more negative fruit you're going to see in your life, all the way up until just a little bit of slight pull into the right. That's kind of just like a little bit of annoyance all the way to a full-blown blowout, and the wheels are coming off, and even people around you are being affected now, and you're about running them off the road because of your choices, right? So that's, that's the alignment issue. Now, for a lot of people, that's not how they see the Word of God. They don't think in terms like that. They don't think of the Word of God as the standard that we are to look to and align and shape our lives to, but it is that standard and this is what i want you to understand there's tremendous power in the word of god to change your life tremendous power and it's something for us to marvel at and wonder at one of the reasons for that is because the word of god scripture teaches us has inherent power okay think think about what i'm saying here the word of god has inherent power i'm going to read to you hebrews chapter 1 verse 2 it says but in these last days, uh, actually, let's look at Hebrews 4.12 first. Hebrews 4.12. It says, for the word of God is living. Everybody say living. living. You see, this, this book is not like other books. I, I try to say this over and over to people. You could read 
Huckleberry Finn a thousand times, okay, it's not living and active. It doesn't have power to, to change your spirit, to change your soul, but the Word of God does. Hebrews 4.12 says the Word of God is living and active. It is sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. That's a long way of saying that when you, when you ingest the Word of God, you're ingesting something that is living and active is going to keep working in your life. It's like taking a medicine. The Bible even calls, says that the Word of God is like a medicine. You may take some medicine, and you don't just instantly feel better, but you know it's working. It's in you. It's changing you. The Word of God is like this. That's why when you have a, a problem in your life, you can meditate on the Word of God in that specific area and you will begin to see change in your life because it's alive and it's active. Praise God. So going back to Hebrews chapter 1, backing up Hebrews 1, 2, uh, the, the writer of Hebrews also said this about the Word of God. It says, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things. Through him also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. And look at this. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. You see, the Bible teaches us not only that the universe was spoken into existence by the word of God, by the power of the word of God, but that literally the universe remains intact and is being upheld by those words that he's spoken. Now, that's some power in the word right there. In other words, he said, let there be light, and it was and it still is. Okay, and, and when you look at the way things are, we're on this uh, giant ball of rock dust, you know, gas, magma, whatever, all this stuff is, and it's just floating out there, okay, and I know science looks at it, and they've got all the, oh, well, it's gravity, or it's this, but I'm going to tell you, when you really study it and look into it, they still have a hard time figuring out what gravity is, is what they say, it's a mysterious attracting force, all I'm saying is the universe is being upheld by the word of God's power. I'm not saying it can't be analyzed from a scientific perspective. I'm sure it can be. But I understand what's holding the universe together. It, it's a lot more than gravity. It's, it's literally the spoken word of God. Now, the Bible that we have is no less powerful than those spoken words. Because guess what? The Bible was first the spoken word before it was the written word. For example, the first five books of the Bible were written by Moses. Now, it, when, I, when you read the first five books of the Bible, there is a question that should come in your mind. How does Moses know all of this? Okay, because he's going all the way back to the garden, and Moses wasn't around for hundreds, uh, you know, maybe thousands of years later. So how does he recall and know exact conversations that were happening in the Garden of Eden? Well, when you fast forward to Exodus, you find out because it says that daily Moses went to the tent of God and that God spoke to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. So guess where Moses was getting the information that he's writing down in the first five books of the Bible? Straight from the mouth of God. That's why he knows exact words, exact conversations, exact things were said. That's how he knows how the worlds were formed when he wasn't there. He knows the story of how they were formed because God told him face to face. So God spoke those words to Moses and he wrote them down, and that's what you have in your Bible. 
So the word of God was first the spoken word, then it was written down for us to keep throughout every generation. And, and some people think it's strange that, the, that, that God chose to speak through a book. Some people think that's strange. But really, if you think about it, it's, it's one of the best ways to do it because it's unchanging throughout every generation. It's, it's a written record of what was said, what was done, and, and you, you don't have somebody that can come along and change it and say, no, it was this, no, it was that, no, it happened like this, oh, no, God said this. No, it's a constant written record of what happened, and it doesn't change throughout every generation. It is the same, and it is the Word of God. Psalm chapter 33, verse 6 says, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their host. I got news for you. Um, it was a little bit more than a big bang that created everything that we see. I don't doubt that it was a big bang, but it was a big bang that started when God said, Let there be light. And the universe was made. You know, I, I recently read this talking about gravity, and I don't like to get in these things too much because I always think there's probably several people in the room that are way smarter than me, and they're going to be like analyzing what I'm saying, if it's accurate or not. So I, I'm not going to delve too deep into that. I had a teacher that once told me, uh, you know, I was like kind of a class clown a little bit for a season there, and I don't remember, I said something dumb in class one day, and she said, you know, Josh, uh, stupidity is like bad breath. Nobody knows you got it till you open your mouth. So that stuck with me, stung a little. Ouch, but I get it. Um, and so same with preaching, right? I, I don't want to say too much that nobody knows how ignorant I am on this until I speak. So no, but I did, I, I read this. I do like to study these things. It just interests me. I'm sure several of us do. But I was interested reading that, and, and a, a scientist actually said, he said, this is one of the great unsolved mysteries of physics, is because what we understand about gravity is that the larger a mass, the larger a body of mass, the, the stronger the gravity is, right? So something like the sun is so big that it has this huge gravitational pull to, to pull all of our planets around it in orbit uh, constantly. Without that gravity, you know, they would just fly off and collide and all these other problems. But one of the great unsolved mystery of physics then is how at the cellular level, at the, the basis of the base, when you get down to atoms and, and, and protons and quarks and all these little bitty tiny things, that's what's holding them together too. And so it's not about mass in that instance. They say, well, it, it's gravity and these, these forces that are holding them together, but yet, uh, but yet they're tiny in nature. They shouldn't have that level of force that's holding them together. And it's, it's something that's still being studied and looked at and, and there's theories and all of that but it's still it's an unsolved it's mysterious in that sense and I would just say I don't care what explanation comes up with uh, he created whatever explanation you come up with to, be, to begin with so in that sense it's the word of his power that's holding it all together anyway amen so the word of God fascinates me and and the word of God has tremendous power to change lives. I get to watch it as a pastor. It's one of the beautiful things that I get to watch as a pastor is how a person can come in with their life in shambles and they've tried everything else. They've gone to 
doctors, they've gone to psychiatrists, they've tried medicine, they've tried counseling, they've tried every, they've tried yoga, they've tried everything. And they come in and they begin to align their life with the word of God. Now, some people do it better than others. Some people come in and they align a little bit. And guess what? They get a little result. Some people come in and they overhaul everything. And they align their life completely in line with the word of God. And the results of that are amazing. And I'm so privileged to get to watch it as a pastor. The power of the word of God as it works in people's lives to bring completeness, to bring health, to bring wholeness. It's a beautiful thing. Jeremiah 23, 29, God said this. He says, is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, and it's like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces. And I love to think of the word of God like this because sometimes you're facing things in your life where it seems like that. It seems like a massive rock. It seems like a massive, it seems like a big problem. And if you'll speak the word of God to it, if you'll read the word of God over that area in your life, you can watch the word of God to begin to work like a hammer, just chipping away, cracking, crushing, breaking that, that thing apart. It's, it works like that. It works like a medicine. I've had things in my life, situations in my life where I've been faithful to speak God's word over that situation and watch the power of God change that situation. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. And it's something for us to wonder at. Amen. Now, the other part that I want to look at um, when it comes to the word of God, just something for us. And this is, I one time I remember I was in a uh, discussion with a guy that I'd went to high school with, and he uh, had he was now professing to be an atheist. And so we were talking, we were discussing about the existence of God and things like that. And there was a little, you know, there was some argument and things like that going on, our discussion. And I remember he asked me, he said, well, what is the number one thing that convinces you and he, he knew that I had already had an experience with God. Because I, 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 I will explain that to people sometimes, and I'll say, look, we're, we're discussing this on an uh, intellectual level, but it's like you trying to convince me that my wife doesn't exist. Because I know her, I live with her, okay? So you're never going to convince me that she doesn't exist. And for me, that's my relationship with God, too. I, may, I know that may not make sense to some people because you're like, well, it's not, he's not as physical as you are. That's true. But nonetheless, he is God, and I have a relationship with God. And I've experienced God. And so you can't, you can't convince me out. There's no intellectual talking that's going cha to change that. So he knew that. We'd already had that conversation. But he was saying, okay, from an intellectual standpoint, what is the one thing that has convinced you that the word of God is the word of God. And for, for me, that answer is very simple, and it is prophecy. There's no other book in the world that accurately, hundreds upon hundreds upon hundreds of times, accurately predicts that things are going to happen in the future, and they happen exactly like it says it was going to happen. It's verifiable. Another reason I believe the word of God is written down the way that it is because it's verifiable. You can go back and check that these things happen just the way that they said they were going to happen. Um, if you've ever been on a, like, a, like a, a computer program or you're trying to get on a website and they ask you these security questions, right? You go in and it goes, uh, what is your mother's maiden name? 
or what street did you grow up in, you know, while you're, or what's your first dog's name, right? What, what it's searching for is what is something out of the mind of this person that only this person could know? It, it's looking for, it's, it's trying to do a security check to go prove to us that you're who you say you are by giving us some information that only you could know. And see, that's how I see prophecy. Only God knows the future. There, there is no human being that knows the future. Yeah, there, there's things out there, oh, you know, fortune tellers. and the, You know, if I gave you a thousand prophecies, one of them is going to be right. I mean, that's, I'm, uh, you know, eventually I'm going to get something right. But the Bible, every single word that has ever been prophesied, of course, some of the prophecies are yet to be fulfilled. They're about the return of Jesus and those things. But every prophecy, everything that is verifiable about a person in a time frame, all of that, every, every one of them has happened. There's not one that hasn't. That's like that little security check to me. This came from the mind of God. And I'm going to show you many, many of those this morning. We're gonna, there are so many prophecies. There's prophecies about nations. There's prophecies about people. But, of course, the greatest prophecies in the Bible are about the Messiah, the coming Messiah, who the Messiah would be. The Old Testament is filled with prophecies about what the Messiah would look like, what the Messiah would be. And uh, there are so many things we could look at. I'm going to run through a bunch of them this morning. But I specifically want to look at this one thread, okay, because, again, we could spend months on this. But I want to look at this one thread of just the lineage of the Messiah, of, of that it was prophesied how he would come. Now, keep this in mind, okay? I got, I got so much we could say here. I'm going to try to stay moving along because I don't want to get bogged down. But keep in mind that it's not even in question. It's not, even, it's not even a question of whether or not the Old Testament books were written before Jesus existed. They, we have, literally have those manuscripts in hand from the Dead Sea Scrolls when those were found. We have those in hand that these letters and these manuscripts were written hundreds of years, some thousands of years before Jesus ever showed up on the scene, okay? So there's, that's not even a debate. Anyone who's arguing that doesn't even start there because that's, that is not even a discussion. So these manuscripts of the Old Testament, they were written well in advance before Jesus ever came. And here are the types of things that were prophesied. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, we get this first prophecy about the Messiah. The, the Old Testament is filled with prophetic references to the Messiah, but not only prophecy, uh, symbolism over and over again. The whole sacrificial system from the lambs, the goats, the sacrifices, the blood, the day of atonement, all of that was pointing to Jesus. All before Jesus ever came. It was all there. But the prophecy specifically, the very first inkling that we get that there's going to be something like this coming is Genesis 3:15 and this is when God is talking to Eve and he tells Eve in Genesis 3:15 he says I will put enmity between you and the woman talking about the serpent which was Satan I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring notice he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his Heal. There's several things in this that are prophetic. First off is, notice he, when, she, when he's talking about the seed of the woman, he says, he shall bruise your head. So he's, he's not talking about people in general. He's talking about a specific person. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. That, of course, talking about the crucifixion of Jesus. 
Now, what's interesting here is that in biblical context, uh, don't want to offend any of the ladies this morning, but, but in, in, in the mind of the Bible and the way things were written in the Bible, when it talks about the lineage of people, the woman is almost not ever mentioned. It's always the lineage of the man. What, who was the father? Who was the grandfather? That's always what matters. But yet in this very first instance, he doesn't mention Adam. Why? Jesus, di Jesus didn't have a father. So he's, he's, when he, he's talking to the woman and he says, between your offspring, Eve, between the offspring of Eve and the offspring of woman, and her, uh, and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, what do we discover here? If, in fact, this is pointing to the Messiah. Well, the first thing we discover is that it's going to be a human male and it will come from the seed of a woman. Uh, that's pretty broad and pretty vague, right? At this point, the Messiah could be any male on the face of the planet, all right? So then we continue to narrow it down. Genesis 22, 18, God's talking to Abraham, and he says, In your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Now he begins to teach Abraham, and again, I'm only reading... I'm only reading one verse that points to the Messiah on this issue, but there are actually multiple verses where the Messiah is prophesied will come through the seed of Abraham. But we don't have time to read all those this morning, so I'm just going to read, I'm just picked out one of each of these that I want to show. So he tells Abraham, he says, In your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. This is significant because uh, at this time, the, the Jews were the Jews, and the Gentiles were the Gentiles, and nobody and the Gentiles were looked at as cursed. They were looked at as not part of the family of God. They were looked at as, you know, something that wasn't going to be blessed at all. But now he tells Abraham, he says, through your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. So we know now, we know uh, from this and other passages that the Messiah was going to come through the seed of Abraham. But Abraham has... Many sons. Well, that's a song, I think. Father Abraham. Y'all know that one. Abraham has Isaac. Isaac has Jacob. And then Jacob has the 12 tribes of Israel. Uh, of course, Jacob's name was changed to Israel, so the 12 tribes of Israel. Um, and he has 12 sons. And so the Messiah could come through any one of those at this point, except we get this in Gen Genesis 49.10, where... Uh, Judah is being prophesied over by his father. Before Jacob died, he's prophesying over each of his sons. And one of the things that he prophesies over Judah, he says the scepter, which is, of course, royalty, talking about kings and, and royalty, says the, the scepter shall not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him and to him shall be the obedience of all the people. So this is another clue that the Messiah might be coming through the lineage of Judah. So now we're narrowing it down even further. We go from all man to Abraham to, to Judah, but then within, within uh, the tribes of Judah, there were specific clans. So if, if you had a big tribe, which might have been uh, like when they did in numbers and they counted everybody, it might have been 150,000 people in, in one tribe, but then within that tribe, there are specific clans. There might have been like the Sullivan clan, and there, there might have been like the McElwee clan, you know, and within that, you're going to have several families. 
So now we continue to narrow it down. Micah 5, 2, we get what clan the Messiah is coming from, from the tribe of Judah. This is Micah 5, 2. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient of days. Obviously, this is not talking about a normal person. It's talking about a ruler for Israel whose coming forth is from old, from ancient of days, talking about the eternal, the existent, the self-existent one. So we find out that not only is he coming from Judah, but he's coming from the clan of Bethlehem. Bethlehem is not just a city. It was a, it was a clan, and the city came out of that. Then we find out from within that clan exactly what family that he was going to come from. This is Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1. We find out that he will, the Messiah will come from the family of Jesse. Isaiah 11, 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. So now we're narrowing it down even further. We find out, all right, it's coming from Judah, it's coming from the clan of Bethlehem, but of that clan... It's coming from the family of Jesse. But guess what? Jesse also had multiple sons. You remember the story? You remember the story where uh, they're, they're, they're being looked at, they're being uh, uh, prophesied over by Samuel, and Samuel looks at the sons of Jesse, and he says, nope, not this one, nope, not this one, no, not this one. And he gets to David, and he says, David shall be king over Israel. Yeah, so he had all those sons. We find out that the Messiah is going to come from the house of David. Isaiah 9, 6 you ought, to, you ought to be real familiar with this one. This one sounds like a Christmas passage, but there technically are no Christmas passages in the Bible. They're all just passages, right? Isaiah 9, 6, it says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. So, find, so now we find out not only from the family of Jesse, but specifically from David, from the line of David, that the Messiah will come. So this tremendously begins to narrow it down who this person will be. So whoever this person will be, it begins to get very, very specific and if and if all of these things are going to be accurate not one of them can be wrong for this to be correct and for this to be the word of God now these things that I'm telling you you might think well you know did, did everybody think like that or did everybody know that the Messiah was going to be like that well the answer was yes that actually all of the Pharisees and scribes and people that studied the Bible around the time that Jesus was going to come, they already knew all of this. And so then the question is, how in the world did they miss it? <laughs> but they already knew all of this. All right? I'll give you an example. Matthew twenty-two forty-one. 41. It says, Now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question saying, What do you think about the Christ or the Messiah? Christ is another word for the Messiah. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. You see, they already knew. They knew every scripture we just talked about. And Jesus asked them, he said, 
from prophetic, from the prophecies that we have in the Bible, whose son or what lineage does he have to come from? And they said, the son of David. They already, they already knew this. Okay, not only did they know that it would be the son of David, they knew again about the, the clan. These are just clues, okay, that I'm showing you. Matthew 2, 3. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all talking about that there was going to be, that the Christ was being born. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. So you see, they already knew this. The Pharisee, all the Jewish people, all the teachers of, old, of the Old Testament law, the scribes, the Pharisees, they already knew these prophecies that I just read to you. He's going to be born in Bethlehem. He's going to be born of the son of David. Think about when Jesus walked around during his ministry. Many times people would call out to him, and what did they say? Oh, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. These are people that are just on the street, never met Jesus before, but they're looking at him going, he might be the Messiah, and they're literally calling him the son of David, which was a... Uh, a reference to him being the Messiah. So this was common knowledge of all the Hebrew and Jewish thinking. They were looking for a Messiah, and they knew all the prophecies about what, that, what he had to feel and what he had to look like. How many of you know Jesus met everyone? I mean, that's why the Bible does such a good job of tracking lineage. You might be a little boring when you read it. You know, and Abraham begat Isaac, and Isaac begat Jacob, and Jacob begat, that's King James, by the way, begat, you know, but anyway, it's, you read it, and if you're anything like me, I've read a hundred times, so I just kind of skim that part, you know, but that's why it's there, is to track the, the lineage of this. By the way, this would be almost impossible to do today. I, I'm, I'm making this point because some in Israel are still looking for the Messiah, but there's a lot of these things that would be very hard to fulfill today for, because in 70 A.D., which is, you know, Jesus died, say, around 33, 35 A.D., somewhere in there. In 70 A.D., the temple was destroyed, and the temple had all of these records. And so it's very, very, very difficult today to know what tribe somebody is from. But at that time, it wasn't. It was very easy to know who was from what tribe. Now, that's about the lineage of Jesus, which is great. He had to fulfill all of that. He had to meet all of that. Um, but that just is scratching the surface of the things that are prophesied about the Messiah in the Old Testament. And I don't have time to read every one of these verses, so I'm going to give you the reference. You can write them down if you want. You can go back and... Uh, listen to this part of the sermon again and write the, the references down if you want to, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show you, I'm going to read these prophecies to you and I'm going to tell you where they're found. So not only do we know all of these verses about his lineage, but we also know from prophecy that he would be born in Bethlehem, we already read that, Micah 5, 2, that he would be born of a virgin, Isaiah 7, 14, that he would heal, deliver, and set the captives free, Isaiah 61, 1, that he would speak in parables, Psalm 78, 2, 
that he would be called a light to the Gentiles, Isaiah 42, 6, that he would be like a shepherd, Ezekiel 34, 23, that he would be a stumbling block for the Jews, Isaiah 8, 14, that he would be rejected by his own people, Isaiah 53, 3. This is actually a, a very significant part of the prophecy because who would have thought that Israel's own Messiah would be rejected by Israel? This makes no sense. Uh, this makes no sense when you're talking about what a Messiah is, right? The, 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 the people of Israel looked at the Messiah as the son of David who was coming to set us free from the oppression of our enemies. At that time, they're under the Roman rule and, and Roman empire. They're being oppressed, and the Messiah was looked at as a great conqueror, a great king, somebody coming to set us free from these things. Who on earth would have ever guessed or ever thought that Israel would reject their own Messiah. No one could have predicted that or thought of that, yet it was prophesied in the Old Testament that actually he would be a stumbling block to the Jews, Isaiah 8, 14, and that he would be rejected by his own people, Isaiah 53, 3. The word of God prophesied this in advance, that he would bring salvation. This is the exact wording, that he would bring salvation to the ends of the earth, Isaiah 49, 6. And that may not sound fascinating to you because we, we already know all the doctrine of the Messiah now. We know that you've been taught the doctrine of Jesus, that he would bring salvation to the ends of the earth. But no one would have thought in those terms in advance about the Messiah. They would not have thought about a king for all people, a spiritual king that brings salvation to everyone. It was a, it was a thought of that the Messiah is going to rescue and save Israel. This concept of bringing salvation to the end of the world that the, of the whole world, that wasn't even a concept, yet it was prophesied, again, with this exact wording, he will bring salvation to the ends of the earth, Isaiah 49, 5. That he would establish a new covenant, Jeremiah 31, 31. Getting real specific, that he would enter Jerusalem riding on a donkey, Zechariah 9, 9. That he would be betrayed by someone close to him, Psalm 41.9. And for the exact amount of his betrayal, 30 pieces of silver, Zechariah 11.12. That he would be silent and not defend himself, Isaiah 53.7. That he would be mocked, beaten, and his beard pulled out, Isaiah 56, 50, verse 6. His hands and feet would be pierced, Psalm 22.16. That he would be crucified between criminals, Isaiah 53.12. That he would be given vinegar to drink, Psalm 69, 21. That they would cast lots for his garments, Psalm 22, 18. That not a bone in his body would be broken, Psalm 34, 20. That he would be buried in a rich man's tomb, Isaiah 53, 9. That he would be resurrected from the dead, Psalm 16, 10. Every one of these things were prophesied in advance. And only a person that wants to willfully reject the, the, the truth of this would, will do so upon fully and completely examining it. And actually there have been many people that have set out to disprove these things and in the process became Christians themselves because they realize how truthful and matter of fact it actually is. So when I consider these things, it causes me to step back in amazement and to wonder at our God. The God that knows the beginning from the end. The God that could 
prophesy all of these things about our Messiah. It gives us confidence about who Jesus is. It gives us confidence that he, in fact, is the Messiah because it all happened exactly as it was foretold in advance. And by the way, another marvelous, amazing fact about the Bible. This wasn't all prophesied by one person. It wasn't all prophesied in one generation. These things were prophesied by dozens of different writers who never knew each other because they lived hundreds of years apart. They lived in different parts of the world, some of them. They wrote in completely different generations, and yet consistently and accurately they spoke these things about the Messiah. I believe God did it that way because it couldn't be said that there was colluding or that there was people you know, coming together to, to try and make this stuff up. The Bible was written by dozens of authors over several thousand years, and yet they say the same thing, speak the same thing, and declare the same thing, and every word of it is accurate and has been fulfilled in Jesus. So what this means for me, let, let me also pause and say this. I don't believe the Bible because of anything I just read to you this morning. I'm glad it's there. I, like, I think that facts should bolster my faith and should support my faith because what we believe actually needs to be accurate. But I'm just letting you know that I don't believe the Bible and follow the Bible because of these facts that I just read to you. I follow and believe the Bible because of my experience that I've had with God and because I believe it is the Word of God. And I don't actually need these things to convince me of it, but they sure are nice to have them. They're, they're, they're nice to be there. Now, if you're a person that maybe you're, you're skeptical and you're going, well, you know, I'm not sure. Yeah, sure, when you hear some of these things, maybe it can bolster your faith. Maybe it can bolster you to, to study it your own self and, and look into it some, some more. But I think that no matter, no matter how much evidence a person has, how much proof a person has, um, that may not cause them to be a person of faith and that may not cause them to be a believer or a follower of Christ. I mean, there, there are so many uh, different arguments and things that can be put out there, but if a person wants to, they can reject them one by one systematically. I mean, the Pharisees, think about this. They had Jesus Christ in front of them raising people from the dead. That, that wasn't even disputed. You never read anywhere in Scripture where the Pharisees were like, oh, he didn't really do that miracle. They couldn't deny it. Everybody knew this guy couldn't walk from birth, and he, he, he was crippled. <laughs> and Jesus laid his hands on him, and he started to walk. Everybody knew this guy was blind, and now all of a sudden he could see. Everybody knew this guy was dead, and Jesus raised him from the dead. It was right in front of their face. They, and if you read the, the Gospels, you never read one time where they were like, Oh, he didn't really do that miracle. You know what they said? They said, well, he does the miracles, but he does them by the power of Satan. So even though the facts were straight in front of their face, they still didn't believe. So belief is not a matter, and I know people like to, th like to think that about themselves. Oh, well, I'm just so intellectual, you know, and I need, I need more proof than that, or I need all of this, and if I had enough proof, I would believe. No, you wouldn't, because belief is a matter of sin in our hearts. And the thing that keeps many people from believing is not an intellectual issue. The thing that keeps many people from believing is actually sin in their own heart. 
It's actually a rejection of God as the final authority in their life. John chapter 3 actually tells us this as well. He says that uh, the sin of the world that they're being held accountable for is this, that God sent the world, uh, sent the light into the world, but they, they hated the light because they loved their own darkness. Not, it wasn't because they rejected the light and didn't think the light was true. They just loved the darkness more than they loved the light. So, yeah, these are some proofs. Great. It's awesome. It causes me to wonder. It's fascinating to me that our God can predict the, <laughs> the future, that he knows the beginning from the end, uh, that he's been around forever. All of these things are fascinating to me. Um, but I'll tell you this, wh- but I-, I believe these things apart from that. But what this really means for me is that this book, and I should have brought my big Bible this morning so I wasn't like pointing at my iPad, but this book, the Bible that we believe and that we build our lives around, it really is the Word of God. And there is, there is proof for that, but if this, if this really is the Word of God, think about the implications of that for your life. It means the things that are in there are not a suggestion. It, it, it means that the respect that we hold it in and the honor that we give to it ought to radically change. It means that it's, it's a firm foundation for us actually to build our lives upon. You know, I've come across things in the scripture that I didn't completely understand that I said almost as an experiment. I'm going to do this anyway because it's the word of God and see what happens. And I'm just telling you that when you live and follow and obey the word of God, it has the power to change your life. It has the power to bring results in your life, even when you don't completely understand it. There's something about that faith that says, I, look, my mind might be faulty, but the word of God is not. There might be areas of ignorance in my own mind. I don't, I don't trust my mind that much. I, it's not My mind is not infallible, but the Word of God is. So where my mind falls short, I can trust the Word of God. I can trust and follow the Word of God out of my faith and confidence in Him. Look at how David thought about the Word of God. Okay, we're going to be done this morning. This is the last passage I want to read to you. This is Psalm 119. Psalm 119 is the longest chapter in the Bible, and I love, I love Psalm 119. Uh, I think it's like, I lost track, but I, I think it's like 180 verses or something like that, somewhere in there, that is an estimate. But it's the longest chapter in the Bible, and when I read it, I really think that David made a point to write this, and, and every single verse mentions something great about the Word of God. Because when you read it, every single verse in this longest chapter says something about the Word of God. He calls it the law of God, the precepts of God, the rules of God, the Word of God. He calls it all these different things. But in almost every single verse, he has something to write or something to say about the Word. And I'm going to just read a few. Y'all was worried for a minute. Y'all thought I was going to read all 180 verses. But I'm not. It's abbreviated. I'm just going to read you a few. Uh, This is Psalm 119, verse 9. He said, how can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. 
Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Verse 33. Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I will keep it to the end. Give me understanding that I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. Verse 44. I will keep your law continually forever and ever, and I shall walk in a wide place for I have sought your precepts. I will also speak of your testimonies before kings and shall not be put to shame, for I find my delight in your commandments which I love. Verse 72, the law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. Verse 89, forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Your faithfulness endures to all generations. You have established the earth and it stands fast. Verse 129, your testimonies are wonderful, therefore my soul keeps them. The unfolding of your word gives light and imparts understanding to the simple. Verse 164, seven times a day I praise you for your righteous rules. Great peace have those who love your law. Nothing can make them stumble. You know what's amazing about David writing this? All he had was the Old Testament. He didn't even have the good news of the New Testament about the crucifixion of Christ. He didn't have the good news about grace. He was this excited about the Old Testament law and rules. Look at what he said, verse 164. Seven times a day I praise you for your righteous rules. How many of you have done that lately? How many of you read the Ten Commandments in seven times a day? Oh, thank you, God, for these rules. David knew something, though. He said those rules and these, and these, and these precepts, these statutes, these things, he said they're guardrails for me. They keep my life in line. And, and I don't even have to understand, but when I follow them, there's fruit on every side. There's blessing on every side because I follow them and I, and I give them that place of honor and prestige in my life. Amen. Let's stand on our feet this morning.